Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox. Uh, BarkBox basically delivers four to six treats uh, for dogs every single month about a, around a surprise theme. So some of the themes I thought were kind of fun were uh, Jurassic Bark, where everything is kind of uh, dinosaur themed, or New York City, uh, Throwback Thursday, Sniffin' Safari. So a lot of fun uh, every month to just get a few treats in the in the mail for your dog. I know that I grew up with a dog. We have a golden retriever right now. And uh, as much as he loves his sticks and tennis balls, uh, when he gets a new toy, he uh, loves tearing it up for the 30 seconds that it lasts. Uh, pretty destructive dog. So anyway, um, if you go uh, to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, you get a one free extra month of BarkBox. So if you use that special URL referencing public interest podcast, just go to getbarkbox.com slash public interest. And when you sign up, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to uh, episode 271 of Public Interest Podcast. We're here today with Baroness Ruth Deitch, life peer and independent legislator at the United Kingdom House of Lords. Uh, Baroness Deitch is a former principal of St. Anne's College at Oxford University and a former BBC governor. She's a former Rhodes Scholarship trustee and is an honorary Queen's Counsel. Uh, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I've just come from a very successful conference about the Zionist movement here in Washington, D.C. Very instructive. Wonderful. So um, the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing? What have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, the public interest is a very broad term. Mm -hmm. I will put on one side for a moment any Jewish and Zionist activities, which is, of course, the conference I've just attended. Leaving that on one side, Mm -hmm. the public interest work I've done, which I believe led in the end to my being appointed as a member of the House of Lords, started in a small way at Oxford. I got involved in the administration of Oxford University and I took up causes like uh, equality and daycare for babies of women and men who were working in the system and who needed to continue with their professional careers and desperately needed childcare. I think if um, you open up my heart after I die, you will find carved across it, nurseries at Oxford. That's what I was known for there. But after that, on the broader national scene, I was invited to become chair 
of a uniquely British institution, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. You don't have anything like that in the States. The Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority is a body that was set up around um, 1991. Britain saw the birth of the first ever in vitro fertilization baby, Louise Brown, in 1978. And as a result of that, and all the interest in that, and all the possibilities, some good and some bad, uh, the government decided to set up a national body that would deal not only with the ethics of in vitro fertilization and eventually embryo research, but also deal with the administration of the law and its practical application. We have two major laws about in vitro fertilization and embryo research and how they can be used. And the body that I chaired had to make both decisions about whether new treatments were legal and also whether they were ethical. I did somewhat, that for seven years. Somewhat analogous to an institutional review board for scientific uh, research studies? Well, it was bigger than that because it had control over every single in vitro fertilization laboratory in the United Kingdom, every single research laboratory dealing with embryos uh, and gametes, and all the clinics where women and men were going for treatment. So it's really quite a big oversight. And why is it that you were selected for this? Is your academic background at Oxford pertaining Well, to in part, the law said that the chairman was not to be a scientist or anyone who had any direct interest in this treatment in order to avoid any uh, show of partiality. Mm-hmm. And that I'm certainly not. I'm, I'm a lawyer, academic lawyer. Also, I think I'd had a lot of experience in chairing committees by then. And one of my specialist subjects as a law professor was family law. Mm-hmm. So I knew something of the surrounding area. Interesting. So you're a family law attorney uh, at Oxford. You're noticing that young parents are having difficulty remaining at work uh, in the economy while, while they have young children at home. So you begin advocating for uh, public, publicly subsidized nurseries or at least, or perhaps... University-subsidized. University-subsidized nurseries for the, for the children of university employees who have newly become parents. And from there, you end up uh, becoming involved uh, in in vitro fertilization and the ethics of embryo research, which... And then, and then how do you... Uh, and, then, and I guess uh, from there, you end up getting involved in politics, and you're appointed. Can you speak more about... I think the, the link isn't as straight as, as you make. Uh-huh. I guess that doing administrative work at Oxford mm-hmm. and overcoming obstacles, because surprisingly to me, there were people, men, mm-hmm. in the university administration who were opposed to nurseries and said things like, my wife stayed at home when the children were small. And that kind of attitude is fatal to a woman who's trying to pursue a career. So it wasn't really a direct link. It was just that I had learned to take on certain challenges mm-hmm. and meet them. Um, and did you find political challenges throughout your work earlier on at the university and then on the embryo research? Yes, the embryo research attracted a great deal of publicity in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found myself frequently in the newspapers, frequently being interviewed whenever there was a new development. I think the most marked was the birth of Dolly the Sheep. Yes the first ever cloned mammal, mm-hmm. and all the research ramifications and possibilities that arose from that. 
and I had to face them, the media and explain that. So you, what was your role with the United Kingdom government with, 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 with regards to the dolly, the sheep? Well, it wasn't a role with the government. Uh -huh. The body that I chaired was set up by statute, mm -hmm. but it was independent. Mm -hmm. And we produced a report immediately after the birth of Dolly, mm -hmm. which showed how cloning human beings would be a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. That is producing a baby with only one parent. But that the research that was involved in the production of Dolly the sheep, cloning embryos, could produce stem cells, could produce great benefits in renewing worn out and defective cells in human beings what was then called therapeutic cloning and is now called embryo research and we presented that report to the government and the government was persuaded by our report and admittedly those of many other scientific bodies mm -hmm. and they changed the law to allow embryo research and that put Britain ahead of the field, way ahead of the USA and we're I think it was Bush at the time. And this is about stem cell research? Yes. Which has many applications from Parkinson's to many other diseases. Absolutely. And George W. Bush's administration said that this was not possible because fertilized eggs were the conception of life and therefore they, they were human beings and they couldn't be researched upon in the United States. But in Great Britain, the conclusion was they could be researched. So did you find American researchers coming to Britain? Yes. We did. We were rather pleased about that. They came to us because Bush, his law was very restrictive and mm -hmm. ours was not. I believe the flow may have reversed now because more recently certain states like California have allowed and funded stem cell research. But we're still very liberal on that and I think the UK is ahead of the field. Obama loosened those Bush restrictions a bit, but not wholly. Mm -hmm. The difference is Britain is a very secular country. Mm -hmm. Even though the Church of England is the so-called established church, mm -hmm. very few people, a few, but very few in Britain, ever took the stand that George Bush did, which was that life began mm -hmm. at the moment of conception and therefore must not be interfered with. Mm -hmm. The issue in Britain was, well, whatever your religious views, we have a national body, the one I chaired, set up precisely to deal with the ethical implications. And what was said by one of our most distinguished philosophers, uh, Mary Warnock, she said, people like to know that there are some boundaries that must not be crossed. They may not all agree on what those boundaries should be, but people like to feel that this area of research is under control by people who don't have a financial interest in it and that there will always be lines that must not be crossed so and that gave the population and the scientists confidence to go ahead. So speaking of no financial interest, uh, at least in the United States, there are many part-time legislators, there are many people who pursue or sit in, occupy elected offices and simultaneously, simultaneously have to struggle to find a way to make ends meet financially. Uh, just to pay for their own personal expenses. Were you practicing as an attorney while sitting on no, this no, board? No, no, I've never practiced as an attorney. I was what you call a professor of law at Oxford. I see. I was always an academic lawyer. I kept, I was principal of, of St. Anne's College. In other words, like, I think what you, call, you would call rector or president of St. Anne's College at the time. 
And the Human Fertilization and Biology Authority was supposed to be a part-time job, you know, one day a week in London. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what with the rise of the internet and so on, it's, it's with you all the time, but it was a part-time job. So you were holding it concurrent with your yes. positions at Oxford? Yes. Okay. And so you have all this work in embryology, you're getting uh, a great deal of education and, and publicity by being a part of this, of this thing. And could you describe the path that you took from there to uh, being appointed to the highest legislative body in the United Kingdom? Well, when I finished with the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, um, a friend of mine encouraged me to apply to be a governor of the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Mm -hmm. It was just an advertisement. I applied and um, I got that post. Like a normal job? No, no. Again, these are not full-time jobs. Uh, the BBC board met, I think, once a month. Okay. But again, of course, I was still principal of St Anne's. Yeah. Although it meets once a month, you still have emails and papers running through your working week. Um, and at that time, we had a number of interesting issues going on in public broadcasting. And again, it was quite uh, difficult. On the one hand, the new media was starting up, internet and the ways in which you no longer just watch television, you watch television on demand, you choose what you want to see. Mm -hmm. That kind of fragmenting of the old family picture of the Mm -hmm. entire family sitting together watching television. And the BBC was at the forefront of those digital advances. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there were a couple of episodes there that really taxed us. One was the BBC coverage of the Lebanon War, which I thought was not impartial in relation to Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were fake photos making the rounds and, and very difficult issues going on. And the other was an issue about uh, the Iraq War. Um, our then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, mm-hmm. had indicated to the country that it was necessary to go to war with Iraq because Iraq could send nuclear warfare off at, I think, was was it 45 seconds, 45 minutes notice, very quickly. And there were those who then disputed, and indeed still disputed, whether Gaddafi had any weapons of mass destruction You mean Saddam Hussein? I mean, sorry, Hussein. Whether Saddam Hussein had any weapons of mass destruction at all. And a British journalist one morning uh, on BBC Radio claimed that Tony Blair had inflated the government's evidence that there were weapons of mass destruction. Which, which from a historical point of view, turned out to be an accurate statement. It turned out years later to be accurate. To what extent we don't know, it turned out to be accurate. The government was furious and accused the BBC of broadcasting news that wasn't true, that hadn't been properly edited and so on. And we were meeting all night to try and resolve this. The government put enormous pressure on the BBC to retract and apologise and so on. And the government funds the BBC? No, the government does not fund the BBC. That's completely wrong. The government doesn't... It is hands off. The the BBC is funded Mm -hmm. by individual purchase of licences to watch by every household in the country. If that's a deliberate tactic, it is not taxpayer funded, it is not state funded, it's funded by those who watch it. Huh. Difficult though that is, that's very important. 
If you live in a household with a television, you have to have an annual licence to watch. So it's not state-funded. But the government put a lot of pressure on the BBC to, to retract. Mm -hmm. And we were meeting, and I took the line that, whether true or not, and in fact, as it turned out later on, it probably was true, whether true or not, it was not the job of the BBC governors to check in advance what any journalist was going to say at six o'clock in the morning, nor indeed even to check the veracity of what he said. That job was for the editors of the BBC. Mm -hmm. And in my view, the editors had carried out proper editorial procedures. They believed that story to be true, insofar as anyone could prove it. In fact, we may never be able to prove it. But subsequent events have shown it's more likely to be true than not. It ended with the resignation of the chairman of the governors and also the director general, the head journalist of the BBC. They resigned over something that ended up actually being proven true historically. Yes. There was a report written by a judge, uh, Hutton, chosen by the government uh, about this. And I didn't think the Hutton report was a good report. He uh, presented in every chapter the government's version of events, the BBC's version of events, and ended every chapter with a short paragraph saying, in effect, he preferred the government view. Now, speaking as a professor, if a student had written something like that for me, <laughs> I would put a red pencil through most of it. I didn't think that was good. But the furore was such that the um, chair of the Board of Governors resigned. Just didn't he didn't have to. You know, he walked in, I remember the meeting, he walked in wearing his raincoat, and I thought, oh, that's bad news. For, for, and more or less walked out again. For our American listeners who aren't familiar with the British legal system, in America, a judge is meant to interpret the law, regardless of whether he or she agrees with that law. No, you're misrepresenting this. This was not a case in court. Oh, okay. This was a judge. I think he was actually retired by um, then. Okay. And they said to him, please, Judge Hutton, you investigate this. This was nothing to do with court. It was never in court. Okay. It was simply a report that he did quite outside the legal system. Got it. As a trusted individual looking at the whole situation. And then you had governors re resign from BBC. Probably wasn't necessary, but they did. And I remember saying to the other governors at that stage, you know, we must stand firm because if ever the BBC needed the governors to stay right there, we should do it. The BBC weathered that. And as the years went on, I think more people appreciated that actually the BBC had got the story right and should always stand up to government pressure if they believe they've done the right thing. Okay, so you've, you've clearly got uh, a wide uh, uh, public exposure. The public knows that you're trying to advance the public interest, both in terms of an ethical point of view from biological research to uh, journalistic integrity. Uh, and, and what happens next? I was on a holiday cruise once, and when I'm on a holiday cruise, I don't really like to say to people I meet, I'm a member of the House of Lords, because then they'll spend the whole holiday just... Badgering you. Badgering me about this and that. <laughs> but I remember a cruise around about that time, and as we left the ship, a woman with whom I'd had casual conversation bounded up to me. She said, oh, now I know who you are. You're the woman who upsets everybody every time you open your mouth. <laughs> so I thought that pretty well summed it up. <laughs> so being somebody who upsets everybody every time she opens her mouth, there's no better place for such an individual than in the House of Lords. Well, our system changed, our national system changed in relation to the House of Lords in the year 2000. Up until that year, if I can compress it, 
The members of the House of Lords consisted of people appointed by the government, always for life, by the way, not elected, and hereditary peers. That is people... Up until 2000. Yes, up and... Was it around about that time? Uh, people who... Uh, Were literally lords. I, I was short, yes. Their father had been a lord, and their father before them, and so on. Hereditary. Were you born to be a baroness? Of course not. No, 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 no. No, my father was just a refugee. Um... They changed the system. And you're Jewish, correct? Yes. Okay. The Baroness is simply a title, a bit like Senator. Hmm. It's a bit like saying Senatoress, basically. It's not a designation. It doesn't come with a castle or a lands or... No, 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 no. If you are a woman Uh sitting in the House of Lords as a legislator, you are Baroness. All of them are. Yes. I mean, we form about 24%. There aren't duchesses or... No, there's one countess. No, 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 no. But there are... uh, what are we were about? A court with probably 150, Countess. 200 women who are baroness. Okay. All right. The hereditaries were removed, most of them. There's a few left. Um, but you were still appointed and not directly elected. Yes. The system changed in the year 2000 mm-hmm. to bring in an element mm-hmm. who are not political. We still have conservative peers, Labour peers, Liberal Democrat peers, and indeed a bunch of bishops, so that's another story. But the system changed to bring in every year some people who are independent, not aligned with either party, chosen for their merit and expertise. So you weren't knocking doors, you weren't making phone calls, you weren't having fundraisers for your campaign? Absolutely not. No campaign at all. (laughs) But they changed the system in the year 2000 Mm -hmm. and you could write in an application like a job or get somebody else to write in. Just like the BBC governor. Exactly. You're applying for these things. So I applied (laughs) and I think my friends all wrote in saying Mm -hmm. it would be a good idea. I heard nothing for five years and then in the year 2005, to my surprise, I got a letter saying would I come for an interview and I was interviewed and uh, then I was appointed actually by Tony Blair Were you interviewed by by an elected official or by the Queen? No, no, no the Queen doesn't do interviews No, I was uh, interviewed by members of the so-called House of Lords Appointments Commission Now, in America we we similarly have a bicameral federal legislature so for a bill to become law it must pass both houses and be signed by the executive is it the same case that it must pass the Lords, the Commons, and be signed by the PM? Not exactly. It has to pass the Lords and the Commons. Mm-hmm. It's not signed by the PM because it would never be in the Commons in the first place, on the whole, if it wasn't with the PM's approval. Mm-hmm. It's actually signed by the Queen, but she never refuses her signature huh. and hasn't done so in hundreds of years. And although a law has to pass through both Houses, the House of Lords, as the unelected house recognises that in the last resort they should give way to the commons. Very often a bill will go through the commons, it will arrive in the lords, it may have gone through the commons in a hurry, the lords is not in such a hurry and we amend it in detail. We look at each single word and can, are free to amend each single clause if we want. And did you resign from Oxford to become a baroness? No, I quit Oxford in 2004. But you're a full-time baroness now. Well, after that, I did have another job, but I'm full-time now. <laughs> okay. Yes. And do you represent the entirety of the UK or just the I Oxford? don't represent anybody. I'm not here representing the House of Lords or the UK. I represent nobody except myself. Nobody represents the House of Lords except possibly the Lord Speaker 
I'm the leader of the house, but I'm just an individual representing only myself. Nobody tells me how to vote. I have no authority to speak for the House of Lords, nothing like that. I'm completely independent. Interesting. So as we wrap up this episode, come to the conclusion of this uh, podcast interview, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question, which is to reflect upon your motivations to advance the public interest in these myriad ways in academia as a ju- as an attorney uh, in bioethics and in journalism, and of course now through the legislature, and what you aspire for your legacy to be. I know that here in Washington, D.C., you're present to advocate for the interests of the state of Israel in relation to Great Britain, but there are many different interests that you've advocated for. Could you please speak about your motivations to advance the public interest and upon your legacy? Well, my father was a refugee. He ran for his life from Nazi Europe. He was in Vienna in 1937 and then in Prague, and he set out across Europe, and he just managed to get to England on September the 3rd, 1939, which was the day that war was declared, carrying nothing. I think he had a suitcase Did and a typewriter. No, he never really spoke very good English for the rest of his life. And he was so grateful to be in Britain. He worked actually as a journalist and for the World Jewish Congress. And my earliest memories as a very small child were my parents by my bedside, not telling me nursery tales, but weeping over the loss of their family in Europe. And my father was so pleased to be here. My mother was born here, but she lost her family. And he said to me, contribute, be grateful. Britain took us in. Contribute, you know, do your bit. Keep your head down. Say thank you. Be a good Jewish person. Contribute. Always remember how lucky you are that Britain, this great country, took me in and took your grandmother in on my mother's side. And I think... Well, that worked its way into my consciousness. Uh, I think that was a motivation. Also, being a woman and being Jewish, I was always sort of, you know, don't dismiss me because I'm a woman or I'm a girl. You know, I can't see the difference. I'm going to get on with things. Don't tell me what to do or what I can't do. I was always a fighter against those uh, restrictions, uh, which have fallen away in, in my lifetime. And as a Jew, again, when I was age five and I went to school, I was the only Jewish child in my grade school. And I had to learn, even at age five, to stand up for myself in relation to religious matters. It was actually a Church of England school. And at age five, we were all taken to the church. And I remember at age five, I knew I wasn't supposed to go. I knew that when they tried to make me kneel, that I wasn't supposed to do that. And I learned to defend myself. We weren't a very religious family, really, kind of, you know, traditional in a cosy way. But I learned to defend myself because the other children tended to pick up anti-Semitic stuff, maybe either from home or from the religious lessons or from church. And, you know, at a very young age, I was fighting back. So I think that's what motivates me. Being the child of a refugee, being a woman, being a Jew, always being in a minority. And that has been Baroness Ruth Deitch a life peer and independent legislator in the United Kingdom House of Lords, a former principal of St. Anne's College at Oxford University, a former BBC governor, uh, and an attorney who speaks about her life uh, in the very many different capacities across society in which she's uh, sought to advance the public interest as a life in which she has fought for what is right. She has sought to do what, to distinguish right from wrong and to, to the best of her abilities uh, stand for the right thing. She has sought to uh, promote journalistic integrity, to
to uh, uh, stand by scientific research and to ensure that ethics uh, that, that such research was ethical uh, and, and she uh, acknowledges that she is lucky to have been given everything that she has been given in the United Kingdom but at the same time uh, stands her ground when it comes to being a woman and to being a Jew uh, and uh, in acknowledgement of, of the plight of other refugees in Europe. So Ruth, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Today's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. They're an online eyeglasses company that for $95 provides you prescription lenses and frames, which is basically a third to a fourth the cost of getting eyeglasses uh, traditionally through your uh, optometrist. I know that I have terrible vision and uh, I'm always needing uh, to pay a few hundred dollars when I get a new pair of eyeglasses. So that's the thing I like about Warby Parker is it's basically the same quality you'd otherwise get, but it's for a fraction of the cost. So if you go to warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest, uh, using that uh, URL at the very end, uh, referencing this podcast, uh, you'll get a special free five-day trial try-on with five pairs, five days, 100% free. They ship it out for free, and you can return them all for free. So again, that's warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest. Uh, enjoy. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.